Last week, John 20 was preached very competently by our deacon Michael. And this week in our gospel lesson, we've got the, the Luke version of the same account. And it's this account that Luke wants to make sure. Remember, Luke's the physician. He's the travel companion of Paul. He wants to make sure that everybody understands this is not simply a spirit, but this is Jesus resurrected with body. You know the reason why he eats a broiled fish? Because they couldn't deep fry yet. I just thought about that. Just actually, that just kind of came to me. Maybe not of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But it's important that we, we understand that, that, that the eyewitnesses, that's what ver, verse 48 says, you are eyewitnesses of these things, that these 500 or so, but especially these apostles, John and Peter, they, they saw Jesus in the flesh. And it, it seems to be in the John version that, that Thomas doesn't have the need to actually go up and stick his fingers in the scars and the wounds like a middle school boy would do or, or maybe a grown man. But, but it's clear that when they see Jesus, they check him out. They go up and they're touching him. They're hanging on to him. I remember when Reuben Sr. back there got back from Mexico and he was allowed to readmit to the United States. And I remember the boys just hugging and touching on him just to make sure he was really there. And that's sort of the idea you get from the disciples. They are, they are touching Jesus. They are making sure that it's not just their dream come true, but, but in fact that he's really in their presence. He eats the fish. No doubt Jesus has a body. He is in a resurrected form, and they are with him. And so, of course, this is the season of Easter. We as Anglicans don't simply celebrate one week of Easter, but a whole season, six weeks and it's an exciting time when we get to really reflect on what does it mean for us that Jesus was resurrected bodily. We get to think and reflect on the life of Jesus and how it impacts us. And if you caught it, I'm not going to preach on the Acts chapter 4, but if you caught that section, basically the, the, the religious leaders are coming to ask Jesus, you know, and what are, are Paul and John, rather, or Peter and John, who... What authority or in whose name did you heal this crippled man? Remember they raised the crippled man. He's asking for money. And they say in the name of Jesus Christ whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead. And there's this, this, this sense that everything that we experience is because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Everything the Father is doing is flowing through that, that pivotal moment in history. That climatic moment where Jesus Christ was raised from the dead bringing forth a new life that we can participate in. When John's gospel and John's letter, which is where I want to really focus today, when John talks about life, he is not talking simply about bios, that which some of you have studied or, have studied or are studying medicine for a very, very long time. It's not the bios life, but it's a zoe life. It's the life that only God can give that we're not born into, but that can be poured into us through the person of Jesus Christ. That is what John testifies to. That is what the apostles testify to. And that is what we want to focus on this morning. If I can just remember where the book of 1 John is. There it is. James Peter John. This morning I want to think with you for a few moments about 
this first John, this is the epistle that John, the same guy that writes the gospel, the longer account of Jesus's life, writes to the church. He is quite old. Remember, he's the only apostle, the only disciple that doesn't get martyred. He gets sent to an island called Patmos, and he writes there a couple of letters. He writes the letter, the gospel of John. He writes the, the revelation of Jesus at the end of the Bible, which is the letter that, that most people like to really study because it's so fascinating and so... Uh, you know, otherworldly. But then he also writes these epistles, these long letters to the churches there. And there are all sorts of stories by uh, Polycarp, who was one of his disciples. Cool name, Polycarp. If I had another son, I'd probably, no, I wouldn't name him Polycarp. I would want to name him Polycarp, but it would not be allowed in my household. But Polycarp is a cool guy in his own right. He, he actually tells all sorts of stories about the apostle John and his... Um, concerns about heresies. John lived so long, like most old men, he began to complain about how bad the world had gotten, right? Man, you know, all these heresies. But for John, they were, they were serious things that were coming upon the, they were, they were attacking the truth that Jesus Christ, in fact, was the Son of God, that it wasn't just the Spirit of Christ that came upon the man of Jesus, and that Jesus wasn't a creation of God, but that, he, in fact, he was God and man, basically the, the doctrine of the Trinity. And so John really writes these letters out of a desire to protect the church that he's writing to, the early church. And John says this, and for me, it, it sort of gets captivating. I'm captivated by that verse there, verse 5, where John says, this is the message that we have heard and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. When I woke up this morning and I saw it was raining and dark, I thought, all right, God, let's do this. Because we're going to talk about the light of God in the presence of darkness. Now, it's lightning. It's getting lighter here because the devil's afraid of the name of Jesus and the power that he brings. So, but here's the, here's the truth that John wants to bring to them. In God is light, and in him there is no darkness. A few weeks ago, I was at a weird place, and I was, I was meditating, and the Lord brought me to this very passage. And I began to pray and, 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 and meditate on this truth, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. And the Lord really began to apply this to my own life, and began to re, I began to realize that there was some sense in which I felt maybe like in some ways that maybe I'd been given a raw deal. That God had been better to other people. You know, sort of like Peter looking at the apostle John, the beloved disciple, and saying, well, what about him, Lord? And Jesus says, don't worry about him. You take care of yourself, Peter. And I begin to think, you know, there's some ways that I feel like maybe I've gotten a raw deal. Maybe like God is, is, is being harder on me than some other people. And I was overwhelmed with this realization, this revelation that, no, in God, God is light. And in him, there's no darkness. And what that means for me and, and what that meant in my life at that moment is that, is that for, for God's very best is for me. That there is no sense in which he's withholding or being arbitrary. There's no sense in which he's giving me anything less than his very best. Because, in, because God is light. God is goodness. And so every action towards you or me is good. 
I don't know about you, that's hard to accept sometimes. You think about all the circumstances of your life, what the Lord's let you live through, and what you see other people living through. Of course, you can only see from the outside, but it's a faith builder to begin to really meditate upon that, to sit with that truth that God is light. And so every action of God is good towards you. You are getting the best for you because that is who God is. Amen. Let me sit down, right? There's enough right there. Uh, Here comes the rain. All right, good. Light and darkness. You won't forget that theme. Not if it rains hard. Okay, so, so just think about that for a second. Let, let yourself just rest in that. This is what the word of God is saying to us. He is light and so every thought towards us is continually good. Every action. There are three things that I believe John, the apostle, wants us to glean from that first John. So if you have access to your Bible on your phone or if, if you... If you, yeah, otherwise if you've got it memorized, but because we, we're, right now we don't have the pew Bibles out, but just, but I want you just to, to kind of think through with me about First John for just a couple of minutes. But there are three things that I believe the Lord wants to say through John to us today. First of all, don't overlook. Secondly, don't underestimate. And thirdly, don't be weary. Don't overlook. Don't underestimate. Don't be weary. First of all, don't overlook. Notice that as John begins to talk, he begins to describe in the very first verse this fact that he is the eyewitness. The very thing that Luke says in Luke chapter 24, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes and what we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John is thinking here of the incarnation. He's thinking here of the fact that that God the Son has been manifest in our midst, that he has come as a man and we've been able to see him and hear him and touch him and know that he is real. And then he goes on to say that, that he's not even really, he's sort of just poetically running on here. It's not even the way most ancient letters were written, but the life that has been manifest, that we have seen it and have testified to and proclaimed to you the eternal life, that's that Zoe life I was talking about, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and what we have heard, we proclaim to you. John is saying, we've touched him, we've experienced it, we've encountered him, and we're bearing witness to him. This is what our faith is based on. These, these witnesses, these who were in his presence, these who have given evidence to the reality of Jesus, not only life, but resurrected life. But then he says something really surprising as far as I'm concerned in verse 3, so that you may have fellowship with us. Okay, wait a minute. John, don't you mean fellowship with God? John says fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. 
We are writing these things so that your joy may not be, may, may be, our joy may be complete. Do not overlook the fellowship of the beloved. Do not overlook the fellowship of the beloved. John is here relating this, this supernatural fact that those of us who've encountered Jesus Christ and have believed upon him have been brought into fellowship. In the Greek, it's the word koinonia. And in this fellowship, we dwell. John Stott's getting a lot of, of airtime lately because Michael's been quoting him, but I have to quote one time from John Stott this morning. This is how John Stott defines fellowship. He says it's specifically Christian. The common participation in the grace of God and the salvation of Christ and the indwelling spirit, which is the birthright of all believers. Don't overlook, John says, the fellowship that you have in the body. It is so easy to to discount, and particularly as Americans, as as Westerners, as those who think in terms of our individualistic lives, to miss the the reality that we've we've entered into in the fellowship. This fellowship that, of course, is fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but it's also fellowship one to another. And John says our joy will be completed as we recognize that and come into that fellowship. Not perfectly in this world because it's a sinful, broken world, but we can know the joy of the fellowship of the beloved. We can know the common experience we have. I am, by the grace of God, been asked to be the president of the Pastors Association here in Gainesville. It's ecumenical, but it's also multiracial, and it is uh, humbling to try to bring together pastors. You think it's hard to bring together a congregation. Try to bring together a bunch of type A pastors from different ethnic backgrounds and different denominations and different spiritualities. It is a task that keeps me, frankly, it keeps me on my knees right now, probably more than anything else, even than paying for my daughter's wedding. So uh, it, it is a challenge. But I was reminded in the meeting we had just the other day as one of the pastors began to talk, because we're, we're, we're challenged and we're trying to say, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as those who know this fellowship, this koinonia, How do we live out the fellowship of joy that John's describing here? And things could easily divide us. Racial things, political things, economic things, all sorts of issues. And then one of the pastors began to talk about everything we should do should be in the name of Jesus. You know, that there's a sense in which Jesus has to be the, the, the undergirding truth of everything that we do. Whatever we want to try to accomplish as, as a group of pastors in this city, that it all needs to be undergirded by truth. And in that moment, I realized that what unifies us, as much as divides us, is the person of Jesus Christ and his saving grace in our lives. That is exactly what John is pushing for as he writes this epistle, that we not forget the fellowship of joy that we can share in Jesus Christ. John's gospel is very similar in a lot of ways. He uses some of the same words that he uses here in 1 John. Just to quote for you, 4, John 1, 4 and 5 real quick. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The fellowship that we can have because we know Jesus Christ brings joy to our lives and gives us the power to proclaim that light into a dark world. And we're living in a dark world. I mean, it's not as bad as it could be. It's not horrible. It's, but there's, there's lots to be concerned about, right? You read the newspaper or at least read your Twitter feed like I do. You, you, you know the things of darkness. The, and, and John has no, no, clear, no, no concern here. John is talking about sin. He's talking about both the sinful brokenness of our world and the sin that us as individual humans willingly participate in. The multitude of sins. But John wants to remind us to not overlook the fellowship that we share in the person of Christ. So having said that, John then begins to, 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 to move forward towards the do not underestimate point that I believe he wants to make. Just one more word. I, I want to remind us that um, this fellowship, this Christian fellowship that we're called into, it is, it is something that is it's not about this koinonia. It's not about being with the people that you like that are Christians. It's, a, it's about the fellowship of all who believe in Jesus. And it's super easy for us to sort of push into our own little camps and not recognize that we are called to be one in Christ. That's what Jesus prays from the cross. Father, may they, or not from the, right before he goes to the cross, he prays that they would be one as you and I, Father, are one. The unity that God calls us to in Christ is something that is easily forgotten in our age. What challenges the fellowship? Well, what I just spoke of, but underneath that, of course, the, the Sunday school answer, sin, right? Don't underestimate the power of sin. John is writing to a church that is being thwarted, that's being attacked by heresies that would try to undermine their understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so John wants to make sure that they, they understand that they, they can't underestimate the power of sin. There are three heresies that are traveling around sort of in, in, in infant forms at the time that John is writing this. This is the darkness that John is talking about. He says darkness in verse 6, and then he uses the word sin in verse 7. The three are simply these. What we, so basically there was an idea that we're really spiritual people trapped in material bodies, and so what we do in our body really doesn't matter that it has no, nothing to do with our spirit. So I feel like this probably is a, a, a belief that kind of is out there in the culture places, which is why it says verse seven, uh, or verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So in other words, if we say, well, what we do in our bodies doesn't really matter. What we do, how we interact with people, how we treat people, it doesn't matter because we're really just spirits caught up and one day we'll be in eternity. John says, wrong. 
Secondly, there's a, there's a heresy going around that basically says that, that because we're truly spiritual people, we're incapable of sin, which is why he says, he says in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I've told some of you years ago about the guy I was playing golf with who, who declared to me that he doesn't like to say the confession because oftentimes he feels he has nothing to confess, at which point I jumped out of the golf cart. It was still moving because I didn't want to be present when the lightning struck. But, but even in ancient times and in modern times, there is this, this, this belief that somehow that we who are truly spiritual are incapable of sinning. This was the problem the Corinthians had, by the way, if you read the letter of 1 Corinthians. And then there's the third, which is to deny, that, um, deny the problem of sin altogether for ourselves. Which is why verse 10 says, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. There's clearly heresies running around ancient times and modern times that say God made us, God affirms us, and sin is adiaphora. It's not important. It's just if we deny that we have sin, we make him a liar. And the truth is not in us. I don't want to be in the place of making God a liar. Because see, the reality is, you know, when I'm honest with myself, before all of you, my friends, I, I know the darkness of my own heart. I know the, the sin I struggle with in my own life. I know that at the end of the day, I have to deal with the darkness within me, the sin within me. Otherwise, it would, it would consume me. It will consume you. But these heresies are running around. And so John writes to say, don't underestimate the power of sin. So now having understood that, what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. Heresy one, truly spiritual or incapable of sinning. Heresy two, denying the problem of sin for ourselves. Heresy three, now read how John sends the gospel, the gospel of light into the midst of this. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Do you hear how John is attacking these? First of all, he says, I'm an eyewitness. I touched Jesus. He wasn't just a spirit. And now he's attacking these heresies of sin. Don't underestimate the power of sin. Christ has the power, he'll say at chapter 2, verse 2, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins but we must throw off these heresies we must throw off these misperceptions we have to take seriously sin if if we're going to allow Christ to do his redeeming work in our lives for he is he did die for the sins of the whole world but we have to receive that forgiveness we need to allow him to do his work in us if it's going to happen But thirdly and lastly before I end, John says, don't be weary. See, I talk about sin and you get weary. I I know. Keeps me up at night too. But John says, don't 
be weary. First of all, notice that he says, he begins, he says, my little children. Chapter 2, verse 1, my little children. John understands his role as a patriarch of the ancient church. My little children, I'm writing these things that you may not sin. But if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And in that, John is expressing this incredible pastoral theological truth. We have to take sin seriously. He says, little children, I'm writing that you might not sin, that you might not be foolishly ignorant or just think it's unimportant and just kind of mamby-pamby walk through life engaging in things of darkness as if they didn't matter. They matter, John says. I'm writing this that you may not sin, but if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. I was talking with someone the other day, and they were, they were expressing this, this fear they had that maybe that the last thing they did on this earth would be a, a, a sinful thing, and what would that mean for their eternal salvation? And, and, I, and I realized that there's this, this tendency to, to either over-respond to sin or under-respond to it, to be either nonchalant about it or to be gripped by it by such a degree that we can't really walk in the grace that Christ has come to give us. John, I think, lays it out for us. He says, don't be weary. Yes, take sin seriously. I'm writing that you may not sin, but if you sin, and it could be when you sin, remember that we have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the atoning sacrifices for our sins, but not for ours alone, for the sins of the whole world. Friends, Christ has come to dispel the darkness, to bring us not only into the light, but to put his light in us. We should not overlook the fellowship of the joy of being one together in Christ. We shouldn't underestimate the power of sin, but we third should not be weary. Christ has called us out of darkness into his light. It is the work he does in us. It's sort of like my golf game. The harder I try, the worse I play. But when I just let it happen, God begins to do a work. I know that's silly, but... And enjoy the fellowship Christ has brought us into this place of fellowship. Whatever divides us is nothing compared to what unites us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words from your your disciple, John. Father, I ask that you continue to let the work of the truth of these verses work their way through us. Lord, we are troubled people. We're people with unclean lips, as Isaiah says, among a people of unclean lips. And so, Lord, we we do cry out to you. We thank you for the light that Christ has brought into the world. And we pray, Lord, that we would walk not weary, but in the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.